back, my friends. My name is Kimmy Jackson, and this is episode four of Make Your Move. We recognize that people are working too hard to avoid uncomfortable emotions. Not just you, all of us do this. Here, you can gain the skills to become a master listener to the feelings you experience so you can understand the purpose behind each of your emotions, not get stuck in them, and respond to any feeling with the confidence you are meeting your needs and moving forward. We concluded our last episode together with a pretty solid emotional intelligence intervention, naming how we feel. It seems simple, but let's be honest, frustrated and replacing it with a more specific and accurate emotional descriptor. Now that you've taken some time to focus on naming how you feel, I really hope that you experience a significant increase of validation in your life. Or maybe you took the time to offer validation to others. Was there a day that you felt tired, overrun, or drained? Just a hypothetical situation, but did you take the time to name that feeling and then realize, yeah, I need a break. I need some reruns of Friends, and I need to snuggle up with a bowl of Bluebell ice cream. (laughs) Or maybe there are some of you that have felt jammed right in the middle of the grieving process. And instead of ignoring those feelings by keeping yourself busy all the time, you took the time to acknowledge that you're sad, you feel stuck, and you need to talk to someone close to you. See, when we name how we feel... It can intensify that feeling. And then what happens is that attached message is a lot more clear for us to read and then to know what to do with. Also naming how we feel offers that validation or it gives an opportunity for others to provide us with needed validation. Okay guys, your mommy needs a break. Everyone, let's give her her space before the mom Kano explodes. That's pretty validating, I think. (laughs) I want to really express gratitude for the tremendous feedback I've received from those of you who have subscribed and are really taking to heart the implementation of emotional intelligence, attachment theory, and especially recognizing that your feelings matter and the people around you have feelings that matter too. From this feedback, I've been able to do what it is that I love most. Witnessing people tune into their feelings, dive into vulnerability, and be real with themselves. I heard people work through the ambivalence and the shame of, ah, why am I crying? This is so stupid. And then move to, I know these feelings are here for a reason. I don't like them, but I know they're here for a reason. So I need to slow down and listen. I also heard some of you say, you know, Kimmy, this really feels like a word game. Naming how I feel, how do I know if I'm saying the right word or the right emotion? I also heard the question, does it really make a difference naming how I feel? I sincerely appreciate this question because it holds me accountable to my original promise not to waste your time and to provide researched, inspired, and truly helpful tools for building your emotional intelligence. First, I want to spend some time answering that specific question. 
does naming how I feel really make a difference? And then we'll shift gears a little bit and discuss a deeply rooted illusion that has been steering us all away, far, far away from gaining a secure emotional intelligence. Well, my friends, what do you think? Do you think saying how you feel, giving the emotion a specific name in the moment you're experiencing that feeling makes a difference? Is that a skill? And does that skill help you regain emotional balance? Do I use this skill? Yes. Do I see and feel its benefit? Yes. Over and over again. One major benefit being that you aren't being passive aggressive. I was privileged to learn this concept directly from Dr. David Burns. He's the author of The Feeling Good Handbook and Feeling Good Together. He taught the crowning feature of passive aggression is not naming how you feel. How many of us have rolled our eyes and said, can't you just tell? You should know how I feel. If you don't want to be passive aggressive, then say how you are feeling. But I get it. It sounds a little too simple. (laughs) And maybe, maybe that's why I like it so much. I like when things are simple. Just an on-off switch for me, please. None of this. All right, now go to settings and go to the second drop-down menu. And then under the left tab, (laughs) no. One reason why online shopping can be ever so dangerous. Just a simple thumbprint and bam, I have new headphones. The people out there who have formulas memorized for Microsoft, Excel, or other programs, I think y'all are pretty genius. Bottom line, naming how, you're, how you feel, it doesn't make the problem or the circumstance you're involved in dissipate or completely resolve itself. But let's see what it can do. How about we use an extreme situation filled with intense, powerful emotions and really test this skill? How about a phobia? That sounds pretty intense. Whether an individual is afraid of the dark, open water, or heights, Phobias evoke a range of potent and forceful emotions. Are any of you out there afraid of spiders? I have this great research study to share with you about spiders. And the only reason why I won't struggle with saying the word tarantula a few times is because we're not talking about snakes. (laughs) Oh, yuck. Never snakes. Never ever. (laughs) I seriously get chills every time I even think about snakes. But... Whenever I think about spiders, I instantly start laughing because all I can picture is Harry and Marv from Home Alone. (laughs) Marv? It's just, yeah, such a classic. Well, let's get back to work here. There's an experiment that was conducted at UCLA. Researchers and psychologists Michelle Kraske, Katharina Krikansky, and Matthew Lieberman started with this question. Can simply describing your feelings in a stressful situation make you less afraid? That's exactly what we're trying to figure out here. A recap of this study can be found in the Science Daily Archive of 2012. And I'm going to be taking excerpts and paraphrasing from their article here. Their article states the psychologist asked 88 people with the fear of spiders to approach a large, live tarantula in an open container outdoors. 
the participants were told to walk closer and closer to the spider and eventually touch it if they could. Does that sound creepy to you? <laughs> we're not talking about just any kind of spider here. This is a freaking tarantula. <laughs> Raise your hand if you would ever be part of this experiment. Yeah, not me. <laughs> I do believe that the participants were given $30 each for their involvement in this study. So I still don't think that would be quite incentive enough for me. But after their outdoor encounter with the tarantula, the subjects were divided into four different groups. They went inside where they sat in front of another tarantula that was inside a container. Okay, tarantulas are everywhere. We get the picture, right? <laughs> so the first group, they were instructed to describe the emotions that they were experiencing. For example, I'm anxious and afraid by this ugly, terrifying spider. Michelle Kraske, she was the senior author of this study, stated, This is unique because it differs from typical procedures in which the goal is to have people think differently about the experience, to change their emotional experience or change the way they think about it so that it doesn't make them anxious. Here, there was no attempt to change their experience, just to simply state what they were experiencing. In the second group, participants used more neutral terms. They did not convey their, convey their fear or disgust and were, quote, aimed at making the experience seem less threatening. They might say, for example, ah, that little spider, he can't hurt me. I'm not afraid of it, end of quote. This is an, a usual approach for helping individuals to confront the things they fear, Grasky stated. Now, this approach reflects a theory in a common psychotherapy known as cognitive behavioral therapy, or what we call in the therapy biz, CBT. In the third group, the subject said something irrelevant to the experience. And in the fourth group, the subjects were told not to say anything, and they were only exposed to the spider. So a week later, they brought back their participants and again exposed them to the outdoor setting and again were asked to move closer and closer to the tarantula and potentially touch it with a finger. Both proximity to the spider, how close the participants were to the spider, along with signs of distress, hands sweating, were measured. Here were their findings. Members of the first group were much closer to the spider compared to other groups. Their hands were significantly less sweaty, and this is interesting. The researchers also analyzed specific words the participants used and those who expressed a larger number of negative words in their emotional description did better. They did better moving closer to the spider and their palms were much less sweaty as well. As individuals described the tarantula as terrifying, this proved beneficial to reducing their fear of the spider. Grasky reflected, that is so different than how we normally think about exposure therapy, where you try to get the person to think differently, to think it's not so bad. What we did here was simply encourage individuals to state the negative. So as we take a step back and consider this piece of research, we all know that the spider never went away, or spiders. The fear was shifted, but the object of the fear wasn't eliminated. 
However, what we can also see is that stating the feeling and being even more specific about that feeling, not wasting time trying to talk themselves out of the feeling, was what was beneficial. But what else was beneficial? Each participant had to move. They acknowledged how they felt, verbalized it, and then they continued the task that they had sought out to do. Did they feel scared? Terrified? Anxious? For sure, all of the above. Emotions don't have to be paralyzing. They're not meant to be. Use them to move. Here's a little Kimmy thought to snack on the side for just a bit. We have various theories in counseling that will emphasize and teach us to use thoughts over feelings or others will say no feelings over our thoughts. Teams of researchers, in fact, have found that milliseconds before a thought occurs, a feeling primed that thought. I love this. This is from Sue Johnson, founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy. She teaches emotions are fast. It takes 100 milliseconds for our brain to react emotionally and about 600 milliseconds for our thinking brain, our cortex, to register this reaction. By the time you decide that it's better not to get mad or be sad, your face has been expressing it for 500 milliseconds. Too late. The emotional signal has been sent. Isn't that interesting though? There is data that supports why my husband Kevin can't hide his facial expressions. (laughs) See, the work of each of these theories, along with others, have had profound influence on how we help people heal and live. And my hope is the cutting-edge imaging and research of the brain will continue to enlighten us and help us understand how thoughts and feelings correspond and communicate with one another. You have them both, and truly, you need them both. If you focus on your thoughts, you don't shut down your emotions, brainstem, or limbic system. And being emotionally present and in tune does not mute your prefrontal cortex. But you know, there is something that is being completely overlooked in the tarantula study and in our focus on cultivating emotional intelligence, our actions, our behaviors, and the choices we make. A paramount component of emotional intelligence is choice and responsibility or accountability of those choices. What do you choose to do with your thoughts and feelings? How do you respond to others' thoughts and feelings? Emotional intelligence is experienced when we align our emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. Bottom line, does naming how you feel impact your reaction and response to that emotion? Well, go touch a spider and you find out. (laughs) The jerry on top that I would add to this topic, naming how you feel, is to be specific. Be simple. Feelings can be complex, but when they're processed and listened to, they're simple and they're powerful. Simply powerful. As we move through this process, you will see why being specific and simple will really serve you well. All right. I've got some more good stuff for you today, but I'm going to tell you, this is going to be a little more rocking and maybe even disrupt some core beliefs that you have, conscious and subconscious. And like always, I don't mind you being a critic or listening apprehensively. I actually encourage it. 
I want you to take the time to think about these ideas and see if these skills and theories fit you and work for you. Do they fit your view of self? And do they fit your view of the world and how it operates around you? So I believe there's this illusion that we all or a majority of us have been taught, more than taught actually, indoctrinated or programmed with. More than likely, this belief started at a very young age for you, and it was and is encouraged at home, in schools, in our jobs, and for a lot of us, this illusion became a guiding star to making decisions, setting goals, ending relationships, or engaging in new phases of our lives. Any ideas what this illusion might possibly be? Let me ask you this. Have you seen the movie Inception? If so, do you remember how persuasive and deeply entrenched a thought can be? Leonardo DiCaprio, he plays a character, a thief, that possesses a very unique skill set to extract secrets from another subconscious. When describing his craft, he said, What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? An idea. Resilient Highly contagious, once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. This highly contagious illusion is independence. Is that a little surprising to hear? Let me ask you this. Can we truly be independent? Completely independent? Can any of us wake up on a given day, perform our necessary task without the influence, support, or work provided by another person? Let's just start with when you wake up in the morning. Well, what woke you up? An alarm clock? Your phone? Did you engineer those contraptions? I don't know, maybe. Maybe not. But what about the bed you slept in? Your pillows? Or what about your clothes? Oh, well, you paid for them. You earned that money yourself. Oh, wait, now we're talking about money. Did you use a debit card? Do we need to talk about the extensive and seamless technology that runs a single transaction from the self-checkout at Target and what leads to an almost instant withdrawal from your bank account, which you can view on an app that was created by a team of people a lot smarter than me? You see what I'm saying here? What makes someone independent? Having a job? Sure, you have a job. You earned that job, but didn't someone hire you? Didn't someone draft an offer letter for you? Didn't HR contact you or did someone train you? Do you see this? Where we're getting at here? Can you truly be independent? Think about how much we admire and aspire to become independent. We place incredible value on not asking for help and standing on our own two feet. Here are some common synonyms of independent. We've got self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and self-reliant. I mean, where would the world be without Kelly Clarkson's hit, Miss Independent? You know, Neo sings a Miss Independent as well, which is also really good. (laughs) Of course we want to be independent, because the alternative, dependent, or worse, codependent, is not all that appealing. Who wants to be the leech always relying on somebody else for your resources, your happiness, your purpose? You might find this interesting. 
You know who are the greatest examples of codependency? Pretty much every villain in the history of Hollywood. The Joker, Voldemort, Gaston, Darth Vader. Their purpose in every plot and in every thought or move they make depends upon another person. Of course we're disgusted by codependency. We've made it evil. But how unfair or confusing is it that we've created an unattainable and elusive stature of being independent, not needing anyone? Let's try looking at this from another angle. Even if it makes you squirm a bit, I'm going to give it to you straight here. We need people. I need people and you need people. This is more than saying that we're a relational species. We're interdependent. We rely on each other. In about 10 seconds, I'm going to list as many people as I can that I rely on in one day, on average. Okay, you ready? A farmer, a trucker, a packer, a stalker, a cashier, an owner, a software engineer, family doctor, my husband, my kids, God, and my savior, school teachers, administration, law enforcement, my mama, other family members, bishop, policyholders, mechanics, clients, drivers, passengers, website operators, and every member of Costco, including the sweet ladies that offer samples. Whew. I think that was more like 13 seconds. Sure, people can be pretty annoying. They complicate things, and do they cause interference? Absolutely. Did I mention that I have three boys? <laughs> but still, we need each other. We need someone to install the traffic lights. Make sure they run properly. Someone to stock the ice for our fountain drinks. The DoorDash driver, the lifeguard, the nurse to perform your emergency chest compressions. We need people. Why would this fact or calling out this illusion be so important to our emotional intelligence though? Because for far too long, we've made independence the hallmark of success. We have been exhausting ourselves and our resources to pursue a goal that quite frankly is unattainable. If emotional intelligence is the bullseye of our targets here, then let's aim with arrows that will point us straight in that direction. Can we aim for something that promotes hard work, expanding our talents, increasing our strengths, and our need for other people? Oh, I just said it again. <laughs> we need people. I'm picturing here this Oscar of a grouch-like person listening, slamming the lid of their garbage can and saying, I don't need people. <laughs> really, this might not be an easy concept to internalize, but... If Ebenezer Scrooge could come out and burst into song Christmas morning, then so can you. Emotion-focused therapy brings to light a beautiful concept termed secure dependence, a realistic view recognizing our need for others as well as our drive and passion to perform, be autonomous, and accomplish tasks on our own. You can see how such a principle, like secure dependence, holds a space and value to each of your attachment needs. You need to feel loved, understood, as well as invigorated with confidence or feeling proud about your capabilities. Does this make us weak or childish because we need people? What Sue Johnson will tell you is that emotional dependence is not immature or pathological. It is our greatest strength. What I will say here is that emotionally intelligent individuals not only understand our interconnectedness, 
They also utilize skills that complement their secure dependence. Asking for help, being responsible, having integrity, and demonstrating empathy and compassion. You think people squirm when I say we need people. What kind of reaction do you think they get when I talk about us asking for help? Is asking for help difficult for you? Yes or no? The answer to this lies within your own attachment needs. Who would I ask for for help? I can't rely on anyone. I get the job done better myself. I don't want people to see me as weak or incompetent. How many of us struggle even to the point of suffering before asking for any kind of assistance? Asking for help is in fact a life skill. Yes, you are equipped with great talents, amazing abilities, capabilities, strengths, ideas, but not all of them. I'm going to state this again, hopefully to perform an inception-like procedure so that we begin to teach our young people to reach out and ask for help. Asking for help is a life skill. When we call out this illusion of independence and transition to a more realistic view of secure dependence, we can see how principles and practices such as responsibility, service, and empathy are so valuable to humanity. I watched a short and sweet TED Talk a while back entitled, What I Learned from 2000 Obituaries. Okay, maybe not so sweet sounding. <laughs> wow, what a great episode, Kimmy. First spiders, and now we got obituaries. <laughs> Lux Narian, a curious analyst, collected 2,000 obituaries from the New York Times. He then fed the first paragraph of each obituary into a program that eliminated all of the filler words, all the ands and thes, etc., his intention was to look for common themes that captured what are people most remembered for after they die. The word that stood out most? Help. How simple and how powerful. We value, admire, and honor those who help. Those who take the time to share their time. How interesting that help was the most common word and not independent or self-sustaining. Well, that's a wrap for today. I hope this episode offered some ideas and encouraged you to continue to slow down. Tune in and specifically, name how you feel. I hope you continue to brainstorm your view of independence and that those thoughts lead you to gratitude for the many hands and hearts that offer their help in your behalf every single day. Lastly, I hope you recognize your interconnectedness and seek out opportunities for you to help, to give someone the benefit of the doubt, to volunteer, to bring the coffee, to offer the hug or listening ear. I know I need people to finish my sentences, to encourage my passions, to hold the door open for my kids and me, to smile as they pass me delicious Costco samples. Thank you again so, so much for being here and supporting the Make Your Move podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're alerted with new episodes. All right, I'll catch you guys next time.